I started to find that there's some alternative ways to manage infants and feeding challenges. And when I would talk about some of those alternative ways in the hospital system, I wasn't met with a lot of open arms about these thoughts. So some of the things that we would talk about would be cranial sacral therapy or chiropractic care for infants, or even when we're talking about management of tongue ties and how we manage tongue ties or even breastfeeding support in the hospitals, I was finding that I, I wasn't being met with a lot of open arms or open discussion about some of these alternative methods to managing feeding disorders, but I was seeing patients who are pursuing these alternative ways and, and seeing results and seeing you know good progress with their infants. So it kind of started making me think, you know, what else is there? What other ways are there? Hey there, and welcome to the Speechy Side Up podcast. My name is Benita Litvak, and I am so grateful you're here. I'm an ASHA-certified speech-language pathologist, author, and augmentative and alternative communication consultant who is obsessed with helping SLPs like you stop reinventing the wheel and connect with other SLPs in the trenches. Have you ever wondered how other SLPs seem to be doing it all with ease? Well, around here, you'll get to hear firsthand how SLPs are really getting things done while keeping evidence-based practice and self-care in mind. Think of this as a coffee date with your SLP friends. Get ready to be challenged and encouraged while we learn together. Today, I'm joined by Jamie Perez. She is the founder of Thriving Joy Pediatric Therapy, LLC in Tampa, Florida, offering mobile therapy services in homes and daycares. She is an ASHA certified speech language pathologist, passionate feeding specialist, and mother of two crazy boys. She is also a certified neonatal therapist, certified neonatal massage therapist, certified lactation counselor in training, and has been treating medically complex infants and children in hospitals and NICUs for over 10 years. She loves tiny humans and is a strong patient advocate and supporter of parents. She believes the best care is family-centered. Now that we've got all that covered, let's get started. Hi, Jamie. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited and admittedly a little nervous. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is your first podcast interview, right? Yes. I've never done anything like this. <laughs> it's such an honor to have you. I'm so glad I get to be your first. So did that bio cover everything as, or is there anything else you want to share before we dive into our topic about pediatric feeding? No, I think that really kind of covers um, everything that I'm doing. I just opened my private practice five months ago. Um, and I am still an active um, therapist in the hospital. So I'm I'm doing both right now. Wow. That's yeah. a lot. And you have two boys. One is seven. How old is the other one? Um, he will be four next month. Okay. So he's like in school full-time, like preschool yes. full-time. Okay. Yes. That makes sense how you're able to like juggle both doing the. Right. Oh yeah. I couldn't imagine being, having them home. <laughs> no. Wow. That's amazing. Well, I'm excited to learn more. So let's talk about, I know you're big on holistic family centered care and feeding. How do you define that? So I think I've come to find just in working in the hospitals um, and then making some friends outside of the hospitals that have different views on kind of the medical system, I started to find that there's some alternative ways to manage infants and feeding challenges. 
And when I would talk about some of those alternative ways in the hospital system, I wasn't met with a lot of open arms about these thoughts. So some of the things that we would talk about would be cranial sacral therapy or chiropractic care for infants, or even when we're talking about management of tongue ties and how we manage tongue ties or even breastfeeding support in the hospitals, I was finding that I, I wasn't being met with a lot of open arms or open discussion about some of these alternative methods to managing feeding disorders, but I was seeing patients who are pursuing these alternative ways and, and seeing results and seeing you know good progress with their infants. So it kind of started making me think, you know, what else is there? What other ways are there? And is what I've been trained in for the last 10 years, the, the end all be all of how we do things. And it just kind of opened my eyes to some other things to um, learn about and try and refer patients to. Makes sense. Yeah. And I feel like there's so much that our field like still doesn't know that research mm-hmm. is not yet like shown and you have that EBP triangle, right? So like the client perspective, the clinical perspective and the research perspective. And so it makes sense that you are taking that client perspective and combining it with like what you know and what you've seen in clinical practice and providing that holistic family-centered care as a result. Yeah. And at the end of the day, if a client is going to pursue those avenues and that's what they wholeheartedly Um, believe in, and that's the foundation of how they want to treat their children, it has to be taken into account because I would see kids come into the hospital for failure to thrive, feeding difficulties. And um, if if I didn't listen to what their plan was outside of the hospital and provide some education on, you know, things to look out for or, or why that's a, that's a great avenue, but maybe this is another avenue to take. If I didn't listen to them, um, you know, they were going to go follow their heart regardless. Um, and I, so I think it's so much better if we can partner with them and provide education so that they know how to find a good provider or what are some red flags, you know, when they get out of the hospital, that would make them, you know, need to come back or get a different skilled service. Such a great point, right? It's like, you want to guide them in the best way possible because they're going to do it regardless. You want to make sure that they're doing it in the most effective way and with the best providers and not do anything that would be like harmful. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Totally makes sense. So can you describe the missing pieces in the medical system and treatment of kids with feeding difficulties? I know you said you've been met with some resistance. Definitely some resistance. Um, I think one of the things that has been really challenging that I've I've seen more so lately is just the lack of support for breastfeeding moms. Um, And some of that is budget and some of that is productivity um, pressures and standards. And, um, you know, I kind of experienced this myself in the hospital with my own kiddos that there weren't enough lactation consultants to go around. Um, And I didn't get that support that I needed right in the hospital. And then I didn't know how to find that support when I left the hospital. Um, And you're just in this overwhelmed state, you know, and you're not necessarily able to, to figure out how to take care of this new baby and find the support you need, or even know what the support is that you need. Um, So I think a lot of it is, is education. Um, educating families on 
where to find support, even just us as speech therapists, most people do not know what we do or how we can support them when they leave the hospital as far as feeding and swallowing goes. I get a lot of referrals for kiddos when they've already had a long-standing feeding issue, and it's so much harder to fix um, when we don't get on top of it right in the beginning. And I just think that, um, you know, part of it is this family is not knowing what they don't know, but also physicians not really understanding our field and what we do and the support that we can provide. Um, so those are some of the things that I've kind of seen. And then even just um, support for empowering parents and caregivers to have discussions about what their beliefs are or what they want in their treatment plan. Um, I see a lot of babies come in and we think they might have a milk protein allergy. We don't really know, but um, the first thing I see done a lot is stop breastfeeding for two weeks. And there's not a lot of discussion with the mom about how does that make you feel? And are you okay with that plan? And what fears come with the idea of just stop breastfeeding for two weeks while you eliminate your diet? So I come up against a lot of moms who are just, they're, they're tearful and they're confused and they're terrified that by following those recommendations that they're going to lose breastfeeding that they're gonna lose their supply, that they're gonna lose bonding with their child. And there's not always a lot of education about why that recommendation was made or even things to do to kind of still have the bonding like skin to skin. You know, that's it's skin to skin is shown to be such an amazing um, thing for babies, but it's not really, it's not talked about a lot. And I think sometimes we look at it as common sense but it's common sense to us. It's not common sense to every parent, you know, that walks in the door that just having your child on you skin to skin can be great for your milk supply. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things I think it's just listening to, it comes back to listening to the families and understanding what it is they want and how they feel about the medical management that we are, that we're throwing at them. And if they're not on board, we either need to provide education about why it's necessary, or we need to have a conversation with those families to try and, and find a, a middle ground. Yeah, no, I can definitely attest to all of the above. When I had my daughter, she's two and a half now, and we just finished nursing in February. Wow, so that's amazing. A, yeah, it was not an easy journey at all. And, uh, what you were mentioning about the whole skin to skin thing. I was just thinking like, I came to this like aha moment. So we were about a month in and I like called the lactation consultant. I'm like, what is happening? Like, it is still so difficult. And she's like, not wanting to nurse. She would prefer the bottle. Like, what do I do? Like, and it was clear I actually had another lactation consultant. Um, we were doing like a mommy and me class and she took a look. My daughter was like not wanting to latch was like really upset. But then like when given the bottle, like took it right away and like was feeding and she's like, wow, she's like really like having a preference and coming from an IBCLC. Cause I thought that that was a myth for them being so young. I was like, 
okay, so what do I do now? Because I thought that that was a myth and that they wouldn't like have a preference so early on. And the IBCLC is like, just do skin to skin with your daughter and like have her nurse for an entire month, like go on a nursing vacation. And that's all you need to do for a month. And I was like, wow, like that seems so simple and it worked. And we didn't do any bottle for like a month and we just did the nursing. And after that, it was smooth sailing, but it was like such a struggle between trying to make sure that she took a bottle so that if I had to leave, like she would take that Mm -hmm. and like pumping because I thought I needed to pump too. Whereas like, if I had just nursed my child, because I was on maternity leave, if I had just nursed her and not stressed about like the pumping and the bottle feeding all at that same time, we probably would have had like a much easier start (laughs) from the beginning. Yeah. And every baby's, every baby is different, you know, and it's just, you know, I see babies, they'll come to us like a week before mom's trying to go back to work and they're not taking a bottle, but they've said to the pediatrician for like over a month that they're not taking a bottle. And it's like, it'll come, it'll come, it'll come. It's fine. It's fine. And then it, and then we get, you know, into panic mode. Yeah. It's so much harder to manage those situations when mom is in panic mode, dad's in panic mode, like baby's in panic mode. And, and we're like racing against the clock when, if we can just get some of those services earlier, it can just, they can, maybe it's just two sessions and we're, and we're good to go. Um, but I just think, I think we're an underutilized, um, source for a lot of, of families, um, And so I spend a lot of time like in the hospital going to rounds and talking to doctors and trying to help them understand why to refer earlier, um, why it's better to need me one time versus waiting Mm -hmm. and then having an uphill battle. So, yeah. Do you provide tele-services? I, I imagine, are you like licensed in other states or just Florida? I'm just in, I'm just licensed in Florida. Um, I find teletherapy with feeding, depending on the kiddo, um, can be a little challenging. So, you know, if, if I'm trying to look at an infant and look at, you know, for instance, like, do we potentially have a tongue tie or not? I don't necessarily always feel great about doing that by teletherapy because I need to be able to be in the mouth and it, I can't just look at the mouth. I need to be able to assess function. And um, parents are great, but they only know, you know, so much. So when I'm talking about, you know, is do you feel suction or do you feel compression? Do you, you know, do you right. feel like you're getting really good, like um, forward, backward tongue motion? Or does it feel like it's not really doing that? I, I don't expect them to necessarily know how to tell me that. So I'm much more comfortable when, especially when it comes to infants, um, you know, being hands-on and being in the mouth or trying to find them a provider that can, can do that for them. That's, that's good to know. That makes sense. Why you would prefer in person. And it's a little refreshing because I think from COVID, a lot of people in our profession, uh, like took to teletherapy, but I, I personally don't feel like all of the specialties are appropriate for teletherapy. Yeah. This one included myotherapy might be another one, myofunctional therapy, another one. Yeah. yeah. I actually was my daughter, we were looking into myofunctional therapy and the one therapist was like, no, I only do teletherapy. And I'm like, but how, how do you, t- right. It's like, how do you know if they're providing the right 
pressure and the, you know, that's kind of, I feel like um, becoming neonatal touch and massage certified was kind of that tipping point for me, um, just in completely having a different perspective on the hospital and, and what we do and how we provide services. Um, that, that certification is so much more than just neonatal touch and massage. There's so much education on environmental factors um, in the NICU and just how to help a baby with like non-pharmacologic intervention. And um, that was really where I started to, you know, like think about how can I help help in a broader way and even just like state management. And those are kinds of things where I'm like, I need to be, I need to be with that baby. I need to be touching that baby and I need to be able to provide hands-on support to those caregivers to show them, you know, how much pressure are you putting or not putting, um, or even just, you know, it's like, it kills me on the Facebook groups. When you see a picture of a baby's tongue, it's like, is my kid tongue tied? And I'm like, no, I don't know. The answer is even if that picture looks like a obvious, absolute tongue tie, I don't know because it, it comes down to function. And if I can't touch that baby and feel function, then I'm not in a position to really truly guide that family what to do or where to go. I think that's a missing piece with pediatricians because yes. pediatricians are so resistant. I That's in my experience to like addressing the tongue tie because they do feel like it's overdone. But if they understood the functional piece, like you need to get in front of a speech language pathologist to see like whether this is functional or not, that's like what would be helpful, I think, to families for sure. Yeah, I have. I mean, I have a couple of pediatricians in the hospital now, and I had one a month ago tell me that tongue ties don't exist. And I was like, but I have a baby and functionally they're here because they're not they're not feeding efficiently. And I, you know, all the things I'm seeing correlate to this, to this tongue, um, you know, it's, it's confusing for families. So. Wow. Very interesting. Well, thank you for sharing that. So now you're in private practice. What was it like moving from the hospital NICU to private practice and being a private practice owner? Um, It's a, it's a huge transition. (laughs) I'm still trying to figure it out. I feel like there's some days where I come home and, and my husband looks at what like scrub colors I have on. And he like gives me a weird look. Cause he's like, wait, I thought you were, I thought you were here today. And I'm like, no, I was at this hospital today. And, um, so he doesn't always know where I am or like, <laughs> what, days I'm, what days I'm doing, what, um, cause I'm still kind of building it up, but it's, re- I mean, it's refreshing. Like it's a refreshing to, to be able to go into somebody's home and actually see what real life looks like versus like the four walls of a hospital room. Um, and to see, you know, what, what kind of, um, chaos or peace are you dealing with in your, in your actual environment? Um, it's nice to be able to just actually spend time with a family on my terms instead of the, the pressures of productivity, you know, um, and get to know that family and what, their goals are and how I can genuinely help them 
And then also for everything, I mean, everything gets to be on my terms. You know, I get to, to recommend a frequency that I think is realistic, but I also get to work with that family as to whether or not that's realistic for them. Um, and I get to talk to them about alternative ways, if that's the way that they want to kind of pursue things. Um, I, I respect the doctors. I respect their plan of care. I always defer to them, but parents want to know more about, you know, different types of formulas, or um, they want to know about chiropractic care and if that's an option for them. Or there's a lot of discussion happening right now about body tension with infants and, you know, are all of these tongue ties, tongue ties, or do we have, do we have tension and we need to release tension? Um, so it's nice to be able to sit down with a family and have a conversation about it and not necessarily always feel like a doctor is going to come behind me and, and say tongue ties don't exist or that, you know, that, that chiropractic care is voodoo. Um, so I like, I like having my own space and my own practice where I can really genuinely get to know these families and kind of become a part of their journey instead of just that stop in, stop out. Um, and then also getting to see where they go after NICU. That's the hard part of the hospital is, um, you don't always, you don't always know what happens to these patients. Um, they, they stop in for a couple of days and then and they make an impact on your life and then they're gone. They're gone. You don't know what happens to them. So I've actually, um, I have some patients that I treated five years ago in NICU um, and they've come across me now in private practice. So that's like, that's very exciting to see where these kiddos are now. That's amazing. Yeah. How do you manage, like, do you see children in the NICU and then are you able to see them in private practice or is there that like conflict of interest there? I take the conflict of interest very seriously. Um, so when I'm at the hospital, I, you know, I, I don't talk about my private practice or what I do or that I'm out there. Um, if families are looking for like referrals, there is a hospital list of, of like therapy places based on area. And so I just, I give them the list and they do with it as they choose. Um, if they reach out to me, I, I kind of, I mean, I see myself as a resource more like I'm not, I'm not credentialed with insurance at this point. So I make a point to, you know, if they are looking to go through insurance, then I try and help them find a provider that that's going to go through insurance. There's no reason for me not to, um, you know, I know a lot of really great feeding therapists in the area that are at hospitals or at bigger private practices that are credentialed with insurance. And so I try and help a family get where a family needs to go. Um, cause there's no point in them floundering or having to like call through a list of 20 different places just to find out that 10 of those don't even do feeding therapy to begin with. Right. Um, so I really try and separate the two and, um, let people find, find me versus me seeking them, them out. So, and I haven't really run into, I really haven't run into too, too many conflicts. I think I've only had like one that was actively in the hospital and I just, you know, referred elsewhere at the time. 
That makes sense. Yeah. I'm asking because I think somebody who maybe works in the hospital listening to this, who's considering private practice, that's probably a concern that they have, but letting them know how they can kind of like handle that situation, I think is helpful. You definitely need to talk to your hospital. So mine has like um, a conflict of interest form that I filled out and let them know that I was out there, what I was doing, um, had a conversation with my direct boss about the fact that I was seeing patients privately. And um, I actually work at two hospitals. So I talked to both of them and both of them kind of have a perspective that, especially since I'm not taking insurance, that I'm really not a con in conflict with them if a patient from one of those hospitals was to come see me. Um, because I'm not really competing directly with the hospital, but I still just feel more comfortable to not, like if they're actively admitted to the hospital, I just feel more comfortable to give them a lift. And if they find me, they find me. Or I have providers um, in the hospitals that have referred to me because um, they they trust me. And so when that happens, that's, I, you know, I take that as somebody else, like trusted me enough to refer to me. So. Perfect. That makes I mean. sense. So what should SLPs know about swallowing and feeding and becoming a NICU feeding therapist? So I come across so many, um, graduate students or CFs. And the question is always like, I want to be in NICU. How do I get into the NICU? Um, I love the babies. And I love the babies too. Um, I think that sometimes we can be really impatient. And I mean, my sole focus when I got out of school was how do I go to NICU? And, and I got there and I've, I've worked in five NICUs now. Um, and I think it's really important for anyone to kind of keep a big picture focus. Um, it's not just the babies that we're treating in the NICU. Like, we're a huge part of the caregivers journey and, and their lives also. Um, I, I probably spend, you know, 50% of my time supporting caregivers and educating caregivers as much as I spend hands-on with those babies. Um, but I think you have to look at steps that will get you to that population. So NICU is infants and, you know, very few people are going to come straight out of graduate school and like find themselves in the midst of a NICU. Um, so I think it's about focusing on what your graduate placements are um, and courses that you can take and then seeking out mentors, you know, finding people that are in NICUs that are willing to um, mentor you, whether that's actively in the NICU or even just mentoring you through your questions and the process of getting into NICU. Um, you know, I in grad school had a great pediatric placement in a like subacute hospital with a lot of infants. And that's kind of really what drove my passion for this. But they weren't NICU babies, but they were still babies that had experienced a lot of different traumas and they were now with us and working on feeding. Um, I am in acute care now and my particular hospital now has a lot of infants in the acute care setting. So I'm in NICU. I'm not in NICU a ton right now. I'm on the acute side, but I'm still seeing those babies. Um, and then even, you know, one of my graduate placements had to be a school 
just the way my grad school worked. And I made a point to try and get into a specific elementary school that served a very medically complex population. And it was all older kiddos, but it was still medically complex. Lots of G-tubes, tracheostomies, and that is still a foundation for NICU. You know, NICUs are in hospitals. So any hospital experience is still relevant to NICU. Even, a, even adult hospital experience is, is important in navigating a NICU. So I think sometimes um, students need to focus more on big picture and not be solely focused on NICU, 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 because there's other experiences that, that can make you an even better NICU therapist just from being well-rounded in the hospital. That's super helpful advice. Thank you so much for sharing that. I know that a lot of like um, our grad school listeners will appreciate that. And maybe anybody who's looking to make a change in the field, you are speaking another language to me. <laughs> when I <laughs> medically complex children, it's usually for the AAC side, but a yeah. lot of did have like the tracheostomies and the G tubes, but no, that would not be something I would be treating. So it's just amazing how our field is so vast and different, you know? Yeah. Yes. Like I, and I mean, even today, like I get things and I, like I get referrals and patients and there's somewhere and I just say to them, like, I'm, I'm not it. Like, could I do it? Yes. But I, there's somebody out there that like lives and breathes this and can probably make exponentially more progress with you in this area than I can in a short period of time. So um, I'm definitely just, especially as a private practice owner now, I'm definitely finding more and more like, I knew my niche. I knew that I loved feeding, but even just finding my boundaries and my comfort zone and, you know, when to refer out or when to say, when to say no um, and find them somebody else. Cause like, like AAC is a foreign language, is a foreign language to me. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, we need to refer out and seek somebody else to help us. Totally. I love what you yeah. said that like, there's somebody else who like lives and breathes this. It's so true. Just experienced this with childhood apraxia speech. We just did a big event mm -hmm. on it. and got to be honest, like as much as I learned, I was like, this still isn't my thing. <laughs> like there are people who love this area. And so it's much better for me to just refer out and I can do what I do best and you can do what you do best. And everybody just, you know, gets their own little niche. We don't have to be good at everything at all. No, I don't think we can be. There's no. just too much. Yeah. So broad. So broad. Well, this <laughs> has been fantastic, Jamie. Would you mind sharing where everybody can find and connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so you can find me on my website at um, thrivingjoy.com. And then I'm also on Instagram as thrivingjoytherapy. So, um, and then I'm pretty active on my um, Facebook page as well, which is thriving, um, thriving joy pediatric therapy. Amazing. Um, Thank you yeah. so much. This was Thank such a you. Pleasure. Yes, I enjoyed it. All right. Until next time. Thank you so much for listening. By the way, have you joined the SSU crew yet? By joining, you get access to the free good section on our website, plus podcast updates, special event notifications, and therapy inspiration. 
You can sign up at bit.ly slash join SSU crew, all lowercase, or just find the link in this episode description. Also, don't forget to take a screenshot of this episode so that you can always refer back to it and share it on social media if you really love the topic. Take care and remember to always fill your speechy side cup first before you can pour into others.